See if this is Focus. If this is radio, you don't have to worry about how it looks. Oh, man. Okay, let's go. Shut the door. Yeah. See you outside? In 1993, Maury Terry would finally get his chance to convince the world of what he uncovered when David Berkowitz agreed to his first ever sit-down interview. Just give me a win, Gary. As the cameras started rolling, Maury would ask David a series of questions that, curiously, never made it on air. Were they trying to bring on the end of the world? The idea was to create an atmosphere that would be conducive to bringing forth the beast, the Antichrist, the man of sin, to create as much havoc and, and disorder and lawlessness and so forth, ingredients that would be part of the end of the world. So do they view this like it's a divine mission? Yeah, sense? to pave the way, to open the way for the man of sin, the one the Bible calls the wicked one, to come in and take control. He couldn't come in and become a world leader uh, and conquer if there was peace. But when the world is topsy-turvy and everything is in chaos and upheaval, then this gives him an opportunity to come into the political scene. I'm Josh Zeman. And this is Searching for the Sons of Sam. Episode 4. The children. Now, our next guest, Maury Terry, is the only author ever permitted an interview with David Berkowitz. Maury Terry, investigator and author, has spent 15 years probing the Son of Sam case, culminating in his best selling book, The Ultimate Evil. For over a year now, Maury had been pushing me to do a documentary about, quote unquote, the real story behind the Son of Sam case. But each time, I refused, which is why I think he finally showed me the book. It was his most prized possession, a red book entitled The Anatomy of Witchcraft, which was filled with spells and rituals as it tracked the rise of Satanism from witches in the UK to the cult scene in LA. As you might remember from our doc series, this is the book that Berkowitz had sent to the sheriff in Minot, North Dakota, who was investigating John Carr's death. He was wanted by the police in New York for the Son of Sam killings. He was afraid for his life, and I fully believe that John Carr was murdered. Now inside this book, you can see where Berkowitz had underlined words like the process or Manson. But what's most disturbing is what he scrawled on page 73. Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, filed to California. Now I knew about Arliss from Maury's book. In 1974, she had been ritually murdered inside a Stanford University church. The campus spokesman said the 19-year-old woman appeared to have been tortured with a pair of three-foot-long candles. But that's when Maury told me to flip to the front cover to see what else Berkowitz had written inside. It read, you'll never believe who this book belonged to. And as my mind started racing, wondering if this could be Charles Manson himself, 
or maybe John Carr. That's when I saw Maury smiling. Because he knew that I, too, was now caught in the web of the Son of Sam conspiracy. You know, my opinion, again, for what it's worth, is that I think if you get it rolling with Arliss Perry and cut from there to the beach, and analyzing these scenes and Christine Freund and John Deal. Now, I'm sure you figured out by now that this case is an endless web of unsolved slangs and phantom killers, including the man whom Berkowitz claimed killed Arliss. A, quote, superstar occult hitman named Manson II because of his drug ties to the Tate murder. Now, we didn't include Manson in our series, and you'll soon see why. But what's most important here is that his involvement suggests that the Son of Sam cult stretches all the way to the West Coast. Were candles found and paraphernalia that would indicate some sort of ritual had taken place? Which brings us to the question of who was truly behind the Son of Sam attacks. Now, this is where Maury's investigation starts to get a little murky. Now, Maury originally believed the attacks were carried out by Berkowitz and this core group called the Children. And in some ways, this makes the most logical sense. Like the Children is an East Coast 1970s version of Manson's The Family, more taxi driver than easy rider. But then you've got the mysterious deaths of John and Michael Carr. And then suggestions that someone has taken the group in a, quote, completely different direction. Now, eventually, Maury came to believe this someone was actually former members of a bizarre cult called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Brethren, as it is, so be it. Christ said, love your enemies. Christ's enemy was Satan. And Satan... What other serial killing do you tie into a satanic cult, Maury? Well, the evidence demonstrates that Charles Manson was involved in a satanic cult. The original name of it was the Process Church of the Final Judgment. So why does Maury believe that the Son of Sam cult is an offshoot of the Process Church? And I ask because this is where a lot of people really start to back away from Maury's theories. And the process split and it changed its name. And it was eventually the New York arm, which melded with elements of another outfit to form what in effect was the so-called Sam cult. Now, a lot of Maury's assumptions came from rumors in the Yonkers cult scene and from experts like Ed Sanders, the iconic beat poet who detailed the Manson process link in his seminal true crime book, The Family. Is he in California, especially in 1970, there were a group of murders committed uh, with ostensible aim of appeasing Satan. And I think there's a phenomenon in the United States of a violent Satanism. And then there was this link between the process's reverence for German shepherds and those found in Untermeyer Park. Before he was arrested, we found a couple of shepherds that were buried. They were in graves, and apparently someone had killed them. And of course, there was Berkowitz himself, who also claimed a process connection. But then 
there's the counter-argument from former members of the process, including Timothy Wiley. It was our fault for making ourselves so mysterious that other people could project their nightmares onto us. But somebody interviewed Charles Manson for we, the death we, issue of We went the to see magazine. Charles Manson in prison. Now, now, we weren't even in Los Angeles when all that was going down. And the idea that Maury Terry goes on about uh, German shepherds being killed, I mean, the idea that anybody there would kill a dog is so absurd. So was Maury demonizing a bunch of misunderstood occultists? Well, that was pretty much what I thought. Ever since I'd first met Maury, I assumed he was buying into this satanic panic hysteria. That was until a few weeks ago, right when we were putting this episode together, when we suddenly made a strange discovery. Peter here. Hi, Peter. There's a whole bunch of questions, and I don't even know where to start. And that was when I spoke to Peter Lavenda, a somewhat obscure occult writer who, unbeknownst to me, had a very personal take on the Son of Sam crimes. That place was a magnet for all of us. It started as the Warlock Shop in Brooklyn Heights, two blocks from where H.P. Lovecraft lived when he lived in New York. It was great because it was really the only shop of its kind in New York. I mean, he had the skulls in the window and the, the robes and the swords and you know, all the weird books. And they attracted just about virtually anyone from the occult scene. And that included Church of Satan. It included Scientologists. It included just anybody you could think of at that time would eventually wind up at the Warlock Shop. According to Peter, in 1979, the Warlock Shop, owned by Herman Slater, moved to 19th Street in Manhattan and changed its name to The Magical Child, which was a name I had often seen in Maury's notes. I was a hanger-on. I, I, I knew the, the players. I knew what they were up to. And quite often, I would run the store. So as things matured towards the, the mid-70s, 75, 76, 77, things got a little strange. And when Sam started, there was a definite sea change in the entire scene, in the entire environment. So you had um, people getting very nervous when the first murders started uh, taking place. And we all knew at the time that this was not the work of a single person. The process definitely was the name that we kept hearing. This process, people would show up in their weird purple and black outfits and you know, occasionally with the German shepherds. But they were always talking about darkness. I mean, their whole emphasis seemed to be on violence, and the German shepherds reinforced it. What led you to believe that there was a connection? Was it that people were saying, hey, things are going on up in Untermeyer connected to process people? What gave you that idea? Number one, as I said, they were like the most evil group in New York at the time, which is saying something, right? Because we had a lot of evil groups. But the evil groups were posers. But the process took the cake because they were organized. The thing with the dogs bothered everybody. And their magazines openly seemed to, you know, support ideas like Charlie Manson. And we knew about the Bronx, we knew about Yonkers, we knew that there were rituals going up there. We had heard about sacrificed animals. The idea of the dog sacrifice fed right into it because 
It was shortly after that that the Sam killings started. That's when we started putting the two and two together. And as I continued to listen to Peter's story, it suddenly called into question a lot of judgments I had made about Maury over the past few years. Maury Terry is, how shall I put it? He got some things wrong when it came to occultism in general. He was he was pulling at um, too many threads when it came to the occult calendar stuff. He was trying to make things fit. But pull back a little bit. Were there occult groups in New York City at the time of the Sam killings? Absolutely. Was David Berkowitz aware of these groups? Sure, he was. He was because I knew people that he knew. We went to the same high school. So we knew a lot of people in common. And we knew that Berkowitz had hung out with some of these same people that we had hung out with, that we were trying to investigate occultism with. When Sam started, there was a definite chill. This was the end of the, the feel-good occult movement in New York. Sam was the end of that. Now, that was like our Altamont. So maybe Maury wasn't totally off base about the process connection. But they shouldn't let him off the hook either. Because right or wrong, Maury started to see Satanists everywhere. Maury Terry believes David Berkowitz was the trigger man in only two of the killings. He says fellow members of a satanic cult were the killers in the other. When Maury's allegations first came out, that the son of Sam didn't act alone, the NYPD retaliated, claiming such reports were sensational and Maury a crackpot. While the criticisms weren't totally unfounded, the damage to Maury's credibility sent him spiraling down the rabbit hole. Do you think there was a concentrated effort to discredit Maury? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is politics. It really was politics. Beam wanted this case shut down immediately. Borelli wanted it shut down. Everybody wanted it shut down because they had their man. Kevin Murphy is a highly decorated former Yonkers detective who spent years delving into the so-called Son of Sam cult as part of a special investigation for the Yonkers police. I just think that they wanted everything to go away. You know, everybody got medals, everybody got promotions, everybody got great jobs. Now all of a sudden, uh, some yokel from uh, Yonkers comes in and wants to upset everybody. They weren't going to let that happen. But Maury's theories, especially those involving satanic cults, would find a whole new audience when suddenly priests, politicians, and pundits, sparked by the rise of conservatism and the religious right, were claiming that Satanists were infiltrating towns all across America. Whether a Satan exists is a matter of belief, but we are certain that Satanism exists. To some, it's a religion. To others, it's the practice of evil in the devil's name. It exists, and it's flourishing. And whether Maury believed the hysteria or not, he was more than willing to jump on the bandwagon. Satanic panic had given Maury a whole new platform to convince the world of what he uncovered and what the NYPD had denied. And in turn, Maury's very real investigation validated the hysteria sweeping the nation, creating a dangerous echo chamber. Didn't uh, the Charles Manson group at uh, one point uh, get involved in some of the satanic uh, Yes, cultism? Manson, in fact, um, 
and Berkowitz, although they didn't know each other, at different times on different coasts, both men belonged to the same satanic organization. In some ways, Maury had made a deal with the devil. He was so desperate to get his Son of Sam story out there, to prove the NYPD wrong, that he sold his soul to satanic panic, and to the tabloid press that helped fuel it. David Berkowitz was involved in it up to his neck, but he was only one of the killers. And that organization called Son of Sam Cult, just to put a label on it, it's real. Which only made those crackpot claims all the more valid, and his investigation that much more sensational. Maury should have always known that in dealing with the devil, it's the devil who always wins. Here again is Kevin Murphy. When I read The Ultimate Evil, Maury brought up some great points, but he was putting too much value in the cult aspect of it. I'll tell you, these are not theologians. These are not people who are into any kind of a religion. This was drugs, sex, and rock and roll. That was it. The occult part is the smokescreen. During his investigation, Murphy often faced what Maury sometimes refused to accept. That knowing someone had committed a crime is far different from proving it in a court of law. But now retired, Kevin Murphy is willing to tell us what he's uncovered. And by the way, he's never publicly revealed his findings before now. I figured out that there were probably five people involved in the the shootings themselves, but there were a lot more people who were a peripheral group, and most that were alive at the time all lawyered up right away. You uncovered that there were five trigger men. Correct. David Berkowitz and four others. Right. According to Murphy, the satanic aspect was nothing more than a moral justification for a never-ending party of hardcore drugs and devious sex. And underneath it all, a number of financial schemes to fund this illicit behavior. So why did these killings happen? What I could gather from all the Son of Sam shootings was that some of them were targeted hits, others were random, and others were to keep the fear in the community growing. Sometimes they had mutual interests, be it sexual proclivities that they had, or they had real estate interests. Not everybody on here was homicidal maniacs. Murphy's investigation also focused on the person that he believes was in charge of the planning. Among Maury's armchair detectives, this mysterious figure is known as Mr. Real Estate, and his involvement sheds light on one of the most tangible of all motivations, greed. What happened during the Son of Sam period uh, was that people weren't going out. They just were staying home. And what was, who was suffering but the discos, the bars? And we were able to identify one person who uh, had a numerous organizations, was buying up the liquor licenses and uh, discos and bars that were going out of business. And... Uh, That was, I believe, was the real crux of this whole investigation. And then there's the other financial schemes. Murphy believed, as did Maury and others, including the Queen's DA's office, 
that one of the shootings was related to an apparent snuff film, and two of the other shootings were actually murder-for-hire plots tied to organized crime. The nexus to whatever you want to call it, the thing that confirmed the whole thing was one of the mob places. They got it all on tape. Now, if you think this all sounds crazy, I don't blame you. But we've profiled a number of law enforcement, all of whom added credence to these claims. From a sheriff in Minot, North Dakota, to the Queen's DA. But there's one more member of law enforcement that we need to talk about. And that's retired detective Marcos Canones. Now, I only learned of Marcos in 2018, years after Maury passed away. It seemed Marcos wanted to keep his involvement in Maury's work a secret. And that's because of the secret he was carrying. A secret he had come to learn after getting to know Berkowitz while volunteering in the Sullivan State Correctional Facility. I think I met with David Berkowitz once or twice a month for 10 years. I believe that David Berkowitz did not act alone. You truly believe this? Based on my conversations with him, based on the conversations that he had with Maury Terry while we were meeting him every month. While David was sitting there, sometimes Maury would have a picture of an individual. Maury already knew the answer, who that person was, but he wanted to hear it from David. So Maury would pull out the picture and say, who's this? And they would say, this is so-and-so. And and, uh, David would elaborate on it. And I would just sit there and listen and observe David's physical reactions. As we covered in our series, Detective Quinones helped facilitate Maury's first ever in-person meeting with Berkowitz. He was also there for every conversation between the two men, especially when David revealed his final secret, namely, who pulled the trigger in each shooting. And you believe that there were other sons of Sam? I think Maury went as far as identifying not only who they are, but also where they were residing. Are any of those sons of Sam still alive today? I think some of them are still alive. At some point in that investigation, you were there. You, you were hearing the things that David Berkowitz said. Did you ever go to your superiors and say, you interviewed David Berkowitz and you had heard this information? Years ago, I, I approached a certain uh, people in the NYPD and I said, look, I got some information related to the David Berkowitz case. Um, gave him some of the information, but nothing was ever done. There was no official uh, investigation after that. But you had names of the other shooters. Yes, I did. I had names of the people involved. And the NYPD did not act upon that information? I gave them the information, but I never heard anything again from them. You think it was a cover-up? Many ways, yes. Why? Why would they cover up this unbelievably important piece of information? Because of the political pressure. Now, according to Marcos, Berkowitz admitted to the first shooting of Jody Valentini 
and Donna Loria. And Brickwitz pulling the trigger here is critical. Because regardless of whatever happens after, he'd always be guilty of that first murder. And more so, he alludes the shooting was far from random. Berkowitz would also admit to the sixth shooting, that of the Esau Suriani attack, where a letter in his own handwriting was dropped at the scene, thus tying his fate with physical evidence. Here's Berkowitz in his 1997 interview with Maury. Did people involved in this group know Donald Laurie? I think some did, yeah. There is a police report in which a male who was connected to Donald Loria had made a statement, allegedly, shortly before she died. And in that police report, he is alleged to have stated that Donna has one week to live. Was there such an individual involved in this group? Yeah. So Donna's wasn't a random attack? No, just not. Berkowitz also alleges John Carr was a shooter in the third attack, that of Demasi Lamino, which makes sense considering how closely he resembles the sketches. Then there's Michael Carr, who Berkowitz alleges was responsible for the fifth shooting, that of Placido Lupo. All right, let's go to the Elephus Disco scene in Bayside. Is it so that Michael Carr was the gunman that night? He's now dead, too. Yeah, Mike was, you know. Was that his? Yes. Then there's the fourth shooting, that of Christine Freud, which, according to Berkowitz, was another contract killing involving organized crime, committed by the L.A. hitman we mentioned earlier, Manson II. Here's Marcos again. I heard of Manson too. I heard that he was the killer of Alice Perry. David had stated that he was part of his group. Who is Manson too? Manson too was identified as William Menser. Now, we'll get into exactly who William Menser is, but for the moment, let's just keep going. There were other sons of Sam besides Metzger, right? I heard the names of the other individuals. Was one of them a woman? One of them was a woman. Which brings us to the Denaro Keenan shooting and victim Carl Denaro, whom we covered in our series. Here's Carl talking about his supposed shooter. The ballistics detective came to the conclusion that a 90-pound weakling or a woman pulled the trigger because of the inaccuracy of the shooting. There was, there was a bullet in the speedometer. There was a bullet in the back of my head, and I was sitting in a passenger seat, and there's a huge bullet hole on the roof of the Volkswagen, kind of like over my head. Five feet, a, that's a pretty big miss. Today, I can tell you that I'm 100% sure David Berkowitz didn't shoot me. Then the Voskarician shooting, which was allegedly also committed by a woman. And there's an allegation it's the same woman as Carl De Niro. Was that woman David identified one of the women of the son of Sam as So we mentioned two other shooters, correct? 
who was the third. And finally, the last shooting, that of Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante, which Berkowitz claims was committed by a member of the cult in North Dakota, who was imported specifically for the attack. What was the name of the other shooter? Oh, you got to keep this a secret, okay? Yeah. Please, I trust you. Now, he did keep Marco's secret as instructed until his death three months ago from 9-11-related health complications. And only now are we allowed to share his story. Again, these are the six names that Berkowitz told Marcos and Maury together. And everyone on this list is either dead or in jail for murder, except for the two names that we're obscuring. Here's the list again. Going through it again, please. With last names. Between us, David Berkowitz. John Carl, Michael Carl, William Menser. How did you find out this information? From David and Maury. Who was putting this all together? Who was saying, let's go out and commit these crimes? That's difficult for me to say. I know that the leadership, whatever leadership was there, and then the group itself would sit and say, let's do it this way, this the way. The children, as they call it. Yes, them. the children. And was this a breakaway cell from the process church? No, and I cannot say that that was ever said to me. Then how did the process get linked into this if the cell, if, if, the, if the children is not a cell of the process? It's a small world. These people know each other. They meet other people, and I think that's how a lot of these groups interact. Evil begets evil. It feeds on itself. It grows. Unless it's stopped. Now, whether Berkowitz's accusations are true, the question that remains is why should we believe him? And the only answer I can give you is the one that Maury's producer, Wayne Darwin, gave me. Namely, why would Berkowitz lie? Why would he admit to some killings and not others. And then there's the case of Manson too, who Maury alleges was William Menser. Now we reveal in our series that Menser was convicted of murdering Roy Radin, and Maury was instrumental in helping to solve that case. Now I think we can safely say that Menser, who was also convicted of a second unrelated contract killing, was most definitely an L.A. hitman. But whether he was responsible for killing Arliss Perry and was also the shooter in the Christine Freud attack, I'm not so sure. Now, he also received a letter from William Menser in 2019, where he denies any involvement in the Arliss Perry or Son of Sam crimes, saying that he planned to sue Maury back in 1989. As for Manson's link, he says he hates hippies and has never done any drugs. He goes on to say, I'm sure you know by now that Arliss Perry was killed by Stephen Crawford. And lastly, he states, I think I've made it perfectly clear that the only crimes I've ever committed are the ones I'm currently serving time for. And while I'm not sure that this last statement is exactly true, I actually believe him when it comes to not being involved in Arliss or the Son of Sam crimes. Which brings us back to the age-old question, was Maury right or was he wrong about all of this? And for me, part of that answer 
can be found right back where we started with Cropsey. So basically this group right on over here, you know, they wrote these letters. Thought I'd write you this note to try and enlighten you at the same time, reassure you about the crimes that are being committed on the island. Andre Rand did not kill Jennifer. All he did was bring her to the coven. Now, as I mentioned in our first podcast episode, Maury suspected that the missing children in Cropsey might have been linked to the son of Sam Colt because of the satanic panic rumors surrounding kidnapper Andre Rand. And ironically, because the former head of the process, Robert DeGrimston, just happened to have settled in Staten Island. Which is why Maury pushed Yonkers detective Kevin Murphy to go up and question Andre Rand to see if there was some cult connection. I found that uh, Andre Rand had family in Yonkers, five miles away from Untermeyer Park. So I said, yeah, let me go up and talk to him. This is the transcription from an interview that detectives in 1988 did with Andre Rand while he was up in Sing Sing. I showed him photographs, and I said, did you know these people? Because he lived in the neighborhood during that time period. I want to know if he knew any of the players. He didn't. But I just briefed myself on the Holly Ann Hughes case that still was unsolved in Staten Island. And I got him to, you know, he admitted to me that Holly Ann was in his car. It took six and a half hours, and it was just conversation like I'm having with you now. And he just admitted to me that the little brat got into my car, and... uh, we uh, were able to get him for kidnapping. And so it was Maury's own satanic panic wild goose chase that led to Andre Wren implicating himself and led to me to make Cropsey. After spending 17 years in prison, Andre Rand has returned to Staten Island to stand trial for the kidnapping of seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes, who disappeared two decades earlier. I had no idea that Maury was the cause of all this until I started looking through his files. None of this was public because, for lack of a better word, this had happened from a mistake. I don't believe in that many coincidences. In this case, yeah, it was. It was just a coincidence. Maury's gift, or his curse, seemed to lie in his unique ability to be both right and wrong. I remember sitting there with Maury in his apartment as his health continued to deteriorate. Tragically, it was only towards the very end did he finally realize that he had spent way too much of his life chasing ghosts. That in the end, there was no network of Satanists. There's only bad people who found each other in the darkness. Okay. Well, thanks for coming by. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. I'm always happy to talk to you. You were the one who said you wanted to come by. I did want to come by. Yeah, you were the one who said that. I didn't say come up here. You said that you wanted to come by. Maury's greatest tragedy is that he didn't end his investigation sooner. That he didn't stop when he should have. He'd invested so much time and effort that maybe he didn't want to find the answer. That somehow he didn't want it to end. Or else 
he would end. In fact, Maury's last words, mumbled to Detective Kevin Murphy, were to contact a lawyer about Eton Pates, who was one of the first missing kids ever on a milk carton. Eton disappeared from a New York City street corner in 1978, and his body has never been found. Maury believed in the final weeks he had uncovered the whereabouts of Eton's body on a farm in upstate New York. I was told the name of the farm was hidden somewhere in Maury's files. The same files which are now sitting right in front of me. You see, in the end, Maury was right. I would make that documentary. Like any good investigator, Maury also knew what had to be done if this case was ever going to be solved. He knew all the leads had been exhausted and all the clues had long since run dry. And that the only way to breathe new life into this case was to wait for the killer to strike again. And that he did. On a cold Thursday night in December of 2015, at 9.12 p.m., when the madman known as the son of Sam took his last and final victim. I'm Josh Zeman, and this has been Searching for the Sons of Sam. Searching for the Sons of Sam is a production of Netflix and Tenderfoot TV in association with Gigantic Studios. Produced by Meredith Stedman, Caitlin Colford, and Alex Vespestad. Executive producers are Josh Zeman, Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and Brian Devine. Editing by Alex Vespestad. Sound design and mix and master by Cooper Skinner. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music by Justin Meland, Alex Lasarenko, and David Little. Our host is Josh Zeman. <laughs>